Welcome back to another episode of the Berean Dialogues. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series focusing on soteriology. My first guest was Kenneth McClure. Brother Kenneth holds to what is known as free grace theology. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest that you stop listening now and go listen to that episode first. On today's episode, I will be interviewing Brother Cole Perkins. Cole holds to what is known as Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation teaches that one must repent of their sins and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life in order to be saved. However, unlike most that hold to Lordship Salvation, Cole believes that a person can lose or forfeit their salvation. So, does God require us to turn from our sins and make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life in order to be saved? What about eternal security? Can a person lose their eternal life after they have received it? Let's talk about it. Cole Perkins, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Russ. Uh, it's a privilege to to be on here, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. Awesome, man. It's it's great to have you. If you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and any type of ministry you may be involved in. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I saved at 17 years old. Um, that was half my life ago. I'm 34. I'm married for 10 years. i got two awesome little girls. And been involved in uh, some youth ministry. Uh, I was pastor for two years. Uh, recently stepped down from that, and um, going to have some more time to devote to um, putting out some videos on my YouTube channel, Practical Faith. Um, started that a couple years ago, and kind of dropped off putting out videos. Um, but excited to get that going again. Um, and uh, so we're uh, recently moved to Missouri, and. Uh, just a lot of life changes, but a lot of exciting things happening, too. Yeah, so today we're going to be discussing soteriology. Um, but you're coming from the angle of lordship salvation. Uh, if you wouldn't mind explaining to us briefly in a nutshell, if possible, what is lordship salvation exactly? Yeah, um, I, I would consider myself a lordship salvationist, and, and by that I just mean that I believe that submitting to Christ as Lord goes hand-in-hand hand with trusting Him as Savior. Um, and essentially, I've kind of broken it up into two groups, free grace and then lordship salvation. I think everyone falls into one of those two groups, and I think a lot of people are going to say, well, no, there's, those are two extremes. I think they're both wrong. Um but honestly, I'm not sure if there's like an official definition for either. And so I've, I've just kind of drawn a, uh, a dividing line. Um, and where I see is one side is free grace and the other side is lordship. And if you want, I can kind of get into, into details on where I think that line is, if that'll be helpful. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, man. Okay, so, uh, and this is just kind of where I, where I see it. Um, like I said, I don't know of any official definitions. Most people, when they think of lordship, they're going to think of John MacArthur and kind of like what he believes. And some people, when they think of free grace, if they're familiar with the theology at all, they uh, may think of uh, Zane Hodges 
and or or maybe Bob Wilkin, uh, who's like a, maybe a little bit newer voice in the movement. Um, but I don't think like th- those are just two people who hold views on the opposite ends of the spectrum. But there's lots of variances on either side. But I think that the line is is essentially this. So under free grace, if a person puts their faith in Jesus, there's never anything that they could do that could possibly reveal that they lost their salvation or that they were a false convert. So they could put their faith in Jesus at like six years old and then go on to live the rest of their life as like an atheist or a Satanist or like a, um, even like a mass murderer or something. But according to free grace theology, they would still be indwelt with the spirit and they would still be a recipient of eternal life with Christ. Um, and I, I've been called, a, you know, on the carpet for like put saying that and people think it's a straw man, but I've never had anybody from the free grace movement, like point out why that is a straw man. Um, I would love to talk to somebody about that, but um, most people don't, don't point it out. Anyways, um, that's kind of where I see a a dividing line. Um, Even like the, the Calvinists, I'm not a Calvinist. A lot of people who hold the Lordship salvation are Calvinists. But even the Calvinists would say, okay, if somebody is a Satanist or an atheist, then they were probably never saved to begin with. And and that's where I can get along with my Calvinist brothers and sisters. Um, I would say that that is a possibility, or it could be possible that they lost their salvation or forfeited their salvation, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Right, precisely. So what does the word saved mean, uh, in your opinion, concerning salvation or soteriology what does it mean to be saved yeah um and and obviously because of the way that you phrase the question you're aware that saved can have a lot of different meanings uh mm-hmm. in the bible and so you see the word saved sometimes people are saved from their enemies or saved from calamity um but the question is like where what are christians saved from and i think this is a really good question and when I was kind of going through some of the questions that you're going to ask, I um, I looked this up in the Bible, like every instance in the New Testament of the word saved or salvation. And um, it, it, it can mean a couple of different things. I do think there's a real sense in which Christians are saved from our sin. So in Romans, it says uh, we've been set free from sin and we've become slaves of righteousness. So even though we as Christians may sometimes still sin, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from sin. We're saved from sin. Uh, Revelation 1 and 5 says, to him, who, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Right. So again, we're saved from sin. And then Galatians 1 and 4 says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and of our God and Father. Um, but a lot of times in the New Testament, when you see the word saved, I think it's referring to salvation from the wrath of God. So we see that in Romans 5 and 9, it says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Um, and then First Thessalonians 1 and 10, Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Uh, and there's lots of other passages, too. I don't want to just like list passage after passage. But uh, there is coming a day when God is going to judge the world, and those who have found refuge and salvation 
in Christ are going to be spared from the wrath of God that's going to come on the ungodly. Um, so in the greater context, the word saved or salvation, it's the safety that we find uh, in Christ by being positionally in him through faith. Mm-hmm. So I know you touched on it uh, briefly during your introduction, um, but just to kind of get it nailed down as far as your perspective goes, um, what must a person do in order to be saved? Yeah, um, just bare bones, I would say, repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, and if if your listeners uh, are free grace, they're going to be like screaming right now because they're going to be like, you just said repent, you're adding to the gospel. You're, um, mm-hmm. But we'll get to that in a little bit. I don't think I'm adding to it. Uh, but uh, I'm going to put out a video on my channel pretty soon about what it means to believe in Jesus. And um, there's a lot of different perspectives in, on the free grace side, too, on that. But uh, I'm going through the entire book of John and just looking at the word belief and, and how it relates to our uh, our salvation. And um, so if you look through the book of John, John writes in his gospel and tells people to believe on Jesus. But there's a lot of theology wrapped up in that. So he says, believe on Jesus Christ. Well, Christ is not just Jesus's last name or something. It's his title. And he's talking to a group of people who have been around uh, or have been anticipating the coming of Christ, their Messiah, for like thousands of years. So to believe in Christ is to believe that Jesus is the promised one from God, who is Lord and King, uh, because that's what they believe. That's, that's who they believe was coming. That's who the Messiah is. He's their Lord. He's their King. Um, and you see that in all the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament. Um, but he's not just like somebody else's Lord, somebody else's king. Like he's he's my Lord, my king. So you look at Thomas, the doubter, when he finally came to the realization uh, that Jesus was, in fact, risen from the dead. He proclaimed my Lord and my God. Right? Not just a Lord somewhere, or a God, he's, he's mine. And so when he he's realizing who God is, he's also realizing who he is, and uh, there's a relationship there. There's a servant-king relationship that's formed whenever he believes in Christ as Messiah. And that realization of who God is provokes him to that response, and the Bible says that, that he worshiped him. So essentially, like whenever we believe in Jesus, by extension— we believe that we are subjects to the one true king. Um, I'm going to get into that and hopefully be able to lay it out a little bit better in the video. So um, check that out on my channel a little bit later if, if you're interested in that. But the, the bare bones, repent and put your faith in Jesus. So when you say repent, what, what does repentance mean biblically? Okay, so... Uh, I don't believe I'm adding works to salvation, uh, and, and I'm going to get into that. So repentance is an internal resolve to turn from sin and unto Christ. So I know you're aware of passages in the Bible that talk about faith or belief, and they don't mention repentance at all. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Mm-hmm. But then there's other passages that speak about the necessity of repentance, 
So in Acts 3, 19, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And there's no mention of faith in this passage. It's just repentance, right? And then 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So the implication here is if, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. And so you have passages that mention repentance only, and you have passages that, that mention faith only, and then you have some passages that mention both, like Acts 20, verse 21. Paul here is testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we reconcile that? Some just, just look at the belief passages and to the exclusion of the repentance passages. But I think we have to take them all together. And I think the best way to recognize uh, the best way to reconcile is to recognize that repentance and faith are essentially two sides of the same coin. So I think repentance deals with what you're turning away from. You're turning from sin, and faith deals with whom you're turning towards. You're turning towards Christ. And I don't think you can truly turn to Christ without turning from sin. And you can't truly turn from sin without turning to Christ. Now, some, some have uh, the definition of repentance as a change of mind, uh, which comes from the Greek. I don't know Greek. Um, I just like will read different Bible translations, and I'll talk to people who know Greek, but I don't claim to know Greek. But I really don't have a problem with that view either, that it's a change of mind. Because if you change your mind about who Jesus is and who you are, it's going to influence your actions. And uh, John the Baptist and Paul, the apostle, seem to agree with that. John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, and then Paul told the Jews and Gentiles alike to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. So you could say that repentance... Repentance is like not just the deed, the deeds themselves, but rather repentance is like a change of mind that results in deeds that are accomplished. Mm -hmm. So um, this is this question is kind of a little bit off the cuff, but it, I thought of it while you were while you were explaining your position. Um, is is there are there any scriptures that would would make it clear that what we're repenting from is sin that off the top of your head? Mm, I've got a lot of uh, scriptures that I had written down about repentance, but let me, let me look through the ones that I just read here. Sorry. I know this was off the cuff, but I, no, I, I okay. had to ask. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a good question. And it's a question that I've, I've heard before and I probably should have been prepared for um, but the, the passage that I'm thinking of is when um, I want to say it was Paul was um, telling the people that he's glad that they were grieved um, because it led them to repentance. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Where he's talking about uh, the letter he wrote and made him sorry in the King James. Um, right. Second uh, Corinthians chapter seven. Yeah, 7, verse 8 and 9. Yes. Yeah, I made you agree with my letter. I do not regret it. Uh, for I see that the letter grieved you, only for a little while. Um, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So you felt a godly grief. So um, I guess I would want to ask, like, 
I would have to get a good definition of the free grace view of repentance, which I know it varies across the spectrum. Um, so what what would free grace people say that repentance is? Mm-hmm. Um, and then how would that view work with a passage like this? So you like, so okay, let me re- let me phrase the question like this then. What what would your what would your opinion be about the free grace position that repentance isn't turning from sin to Christ, but it's rather uh, turning from unbelief to belief. But of course, your your the way you define belief is different from what the way they define belief. They what what I've heard is that what free grace holds is that repentance is changing your mind about who Christ is. Um, going from being an unbeliever in rejecting Christ to turning from that unbelief to belief in Christ and what the scriptures reveal about him. Um, well, so I wonder how that would fit with, with something like, so I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting. Mm-hmm. So what were they repenting? Were they re- they were repenting of their unbelief? It doesn't seem like that would fit the context at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think I think Second Corinthians is a is a good uh, a good example for uh, how repentance is used in the Bible for turning mm-hmm. you know from sin or at least like you said um, maybe it's an internal acknowledging you know type of thing like you were saying but you're saying that that internal uh, turning from or changing of heart or mind uh, will result in an outward action. Um, So I have to ask, uh, do you believe that baptism is required for salvation? Uh, No, definitely not. Um, I think that the strongest reputation that I know of is is Acts 10, Cornelius and his house. They were uh, filled with the Spirit as they were hearing Peter preach. And obviously, most Christians would agree if you're filled with the Spirit, you're saved. Um, and all they, they had not yet been baptized, right? So they were saved before they were baptized. Um, baptism is, is spoken of a lot in the New Testament, and it's always preached in conjunction with the gospel. Um, so if, if somebody n- knew about baptism and they knew baptism was a command of Christ, and for some reason they just refused, they're like, Jesus said to do it, but I don't want to do it. Um, I might question whether or not they'd really put their faith in Jesus. Um, they really changed their mind about who he was or who they were. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think it's required, but there's some interesting passages like Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, so I think the way to to understand this verse is that true believers are going to follow through with the commands of Christ to be baptized. And I don't think you're going to come across any or, or many first century Christians that just refused to be baptized because it was understood that if you believe, like, this is the next step, this is what you do. Um, but yeah, not not a requirement. Like, if somebody's on their deathbed, I do believe there's deathbed conversions, and like, if or people are in the desert or in a prison camp or something and they can't be baptized, like, God's not going to reject them at the gate because they didn't have access to water. Right, or like hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Yeah, type absolutely. of thing. Yeah, so uh, I know you mentioned various scriptures uh, throughout your answers here, 
But what what is some of the most substantial scriptural evidence for your position concerning lordship salvation? Like, if you if you had like a couple just what you would consider trump cards or truth bombs or hard to refute, you know, uh, scriptures, wh- which ones would you pull out to best make your case? Um, there, there's a lot here, Russ. Um, I actually, when I was diving into this study, I read through the whole New Testament and I kept track of every passage that I thought could have any bearing on the discussion. And just, I, I came up with over a hundred passages and the overwhelming majority, like 95% seem to support my position. I'm aware that, uh, I have bias and I'll admit that I have bias, but I don't think that I'm 95% biased. Um, but, uh, I, I think if there's any relationship at all between somebody's actions and their eternal destination, then free grace theology would be wrong. And, and therefore the opposite lordship salvation would be correct. Just keeping in mind, like the line that I drew in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'll say that one more time. If, if there's any relationship at all between somebody's actions and their eternal destination, then my position seems to be correct. And there's a lot of verses, and I'm just going to uh, go through a couple of these for you, maybe maybe five, and I'll try to move kind of quick. Um, but there's this one in Revelation 21 and 8, connecting people's actions with their des- destination. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderer, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, or the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this category of people will experience hell. Uh, Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexually immoral, um, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warn you before that those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, we're, we're connecting works with uh, people's eternal destination here. First Corinthians 6, 9, and uh, 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These people won't, these people won't make it. Um, be not deceived. That's what the, the King James Version says. Be not deceived. Uh, and it actually says it right here. Do not be deceived. Mm-hmm. Um, so the implication is that it is possible for people to be deceived into thinking that you can do these things and go to heaven. And he's saying right here, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that that is a possibility because it, it, it doesn't happen. Now, there's a lot of things that we could get into on this one. Uh, you know, if somebody lies one time, does that make them a liar? I, I think here in, in these passages that I'm talking about, like, these are people who are living their lives in this way, that these things are characterizing who they are. Right? They're not in Christ. They're not just Christians who stumble. These things characterize their lives. But uh, on the passage that I just read, I think some people, and, and, and in Galatians and some other places, some free grace advocates make the distinction between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. Um, and I don't really see that distinction. I think it's kind of a way to try to explain these verses away. 
because um, in the next verse, Paul Paul goes on to say, like, that used to be you. You used to be a liar, sexually more idolater. That used to be you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Right? So inheriting the kingdom is seen here in conjunction with being washed from sin and being justified by Christ. So all of the saved are going to inherit the kingdom. All Christians are going to inherit the kingdom. And then um, Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds are, and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So that seems to be saying that they don't actually know him, which is evident by their works. Um, if you don't actually know Christ, then you're not saved. Right. And then John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Um, this is the English Standard Version. Uh, most free grace proponents are not going to like this translation. Uh, at least in that passage. Right. Uh, but other passages like the King James Version, it's going to say, uh, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, which still I, I don't think that that really supports the free grace narrative here. Um, because if you believe free grace, you would have to say that there are unbelievers that will see life, that are saved in the end, and go into eternity as an unbeliever, because at one time they believed, but then later on they lost their faith and no longer believe, but they'll still hold to eternal life. And I don't think, I think that's contradicted here by this passage. There's a lot more, but I'm going to stop right there for now. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I know that you kind of touched on this and uh, people are paying attention. They, they know your answer, but if you could explain it a little bit more, um, can a person lose their salvation? Yes, this is, this is a touchy subject. Um, I was, I was talking to a coworker today about this and, uh, and he is holds to eternal security and got uncomfortable for just a second. Um, but I don't think it really has to be, uh, I personally do believe that someone can lose their salvation. I don't think it's like losing your car keys. I don't believe that salvation is fragile. I used to hold to that view when I first got saved. And I was kind of around the circles that, that I was in. They thought that you could get saved and lose it five times in a week. And I don't think that that's the case. But uh, I do believe that if someone forfeits their faith, they, they had their faith, which brings them into Christ. They forfeit their faith. I believe they can be cut off from Christ. Um, so forfeiting your faith by extension, you're forfeiting your salvation. Um, and I do see the relevance of this topic in this discussion, but I do want your audience to know, uh, they're probably already aware of this, but lots of people who, who hold to my view on Lordship Salvation also hold to eternal security. That's probably a majority of them. So the, the most prominent defenders of this position are Calvinists like John MacArthur or Wayne Grudem, uh, and they hold the perseverance of the saints. But they would just say that the atheists or the Satanists or murder or whatever was never saved to begin with. So that's kind of the difference between us. But yeah, I personally do believe that someone can lose their salvation. So what... <sighs> 
what are some of the scriptures that you personally feel just cannot be explained by free grace advocates? Basically, which scriptures do you think really stump the free grace uh, believer, if you will? Right. And like I mentioned, I went through the whole New Testament, so there's lots of verses here. I'm going to give you, let's say, I don't know, maybe six more verses. Absolutely. Um, and it would be cool if, if maybe maybe you or, or one of your listeners could take some of these verses and then give me the, the free grace explanation. I, I've read through some of Bob Wilkins, I think, or uh, no, there's somebody else. I've, I've read through a book with some explanations on some of these, but I didn't really find them convincing. Um, but but I'm just going to go through and give you some Second um, Peter chapter two verse twenty. I think this is a really strong one. It's speaking of false teachers in the context, and Peter says, "For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter is worse with them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than." after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So these these false teachers, they'd escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? If you do that, you're saved. You escape from the world, you have that knowledge of the Lord and Savior, you're saved. But then they had returned to the pollutions of the world, and Peter says that it would have been better for them if they had just never known the way of righteousness. Like their condemnation is going to be greater because they had this experience. They knew the way of righteousness, but then they they turned from it. I, I don't think you can make sense of this according to free grace, because um, even if they turned away from God under free grace theology, they still would be saved. And that would be way better than not being saved. So I I don't see how that makes sense. That's, that's one of the questions I brought up to Sean Lazar in our uh, debate on this topic, which I'm a terrible debater, but... Um, but he wasn't able to to really answer it, I don't think. Um, and I haven't heard a good answer yet. Maybe it's out there, but I haven't heard it. Uh, Hebrews 5 and 9. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. So obedience is tied to eternal salvation. Uh, the free grace proponent would say that you don't necessarily have to obey. They, they don't like push that and tell people you don't have to obey. Um, but on their theology, you can just believe, and your obedience doesn't really have to follow from that belief. Second uh, John 1 and 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you have to go on abiding in the teaching of Christ to have God. So I guess the question that I would have for, for free grace proponents would be, can you not have God and still be saved? I don't think that you can be positionally in Christ and then dwell with the Holy Spirit and then not have God at the same time. Mm. Uh, Galatians 5 and 24 says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, so a free grace proponent would be forced to say that it's it's possible to not belong to christ and still be saved because they say you don't necessarily have to crucify your flesh with its passions and desires you should 
like no no free grace proponent is going to say you, you don't you shouldn't do that there there's a lot of good godly free grace proponents right i i think i count many of them as brothers and sisters in christ and they're pushing godly living but they would just say that that person is still saved even though they've not crucified their flesh with its passions and desires um but i don't see how they get around this passage mm-hmm. i'm gonna give you two more real quick romans 2 6 it says he will render to each one according to his works um so whenever I, I say say that, um, I think that the free grace of front would probably think, okay, judgment according to works, um, all Christians or all people who have ever believed they're going to be judged according to their works, and it's going to be like the works-based judgment. It's not a heaven or hell thing. It's just like rewards thing. But here it says he's going to render each one according to their works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But on the other hand, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So these, these rewards and these judgments are contrasted here. You don't, you don't get immortality and eternal life if you refuse to obey the truth and obey righteousness. Those are things that are reserved for people who are obeying the truth and obeying righteousness. And the last one I want to mention, and there's probably about three dozen that are, I think, pretty weighty. Um, but Matthew 18 and 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hellfire. So the implication here is that sin can cause you to not enter into life. And I don't think that makes sense under free grace theology mm-hmm. um i'll i'll leave it at that for now oh man no, no if, if you got if you got another one you want to share go ahead no problem um that's that's all that i had written down okay. um if you want sometime i can i can email you the list of everything that i put together and that'd be great i'd love to hear your perspective on some of them awesome i'm sure everybody listening is wondering too <laughs> where does this guy stand so I want to read a scripture because um, you you may have a, a different version of the Bible that you're reading from, um, but I want to read from the King James and it's First John uh, three nine. Uh, let's see, First John three nine. It says, "Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin." Because he is born of God, I want to get your uh, your interpretation or get your opinion. What does it mean when it says here in this verse, "He cannot sin"? Yeah, this is a super interesting verse. We're going to go over the number of super interesting verses, but um, so he cannot sin. Uh, I don't. I don't think that this verse is advocating for like sinless perfectionism because the same author in chapter one, verse eight tells us if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So obviously we can sin as Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he also says in chapter two, verse one, I'm writing these things unto you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? So you, 
as a born-again believer in God, in Jesus Christ, with the new nature, you can still sin. But the, um, the explanation that makes the most sense to me is just like the plain reading of some of the most well-respected Bible versions. I know the King James is kind of like the classic well-respected Bible version, but there are others, as I, as I know you're aware, because you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Like the NIV, the NASB, and the ESB, they all say pretty much the same thing. Um, so here's the ESB rendering of the text. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So I just kind of take that. Um, these are these are Greek scholars, too, and uh, these Bible translation groups, and they know a lot more about it than I do. So, um, But I, I think a Christian can sin, a Christian will sin. But I don't think that a Christian will remain in that sin indefinitely because he's going to feel the guilt and the weight of his sin. The Holy Spirit inside of him is not going to allow him to continue on in that uh, unless he just sears his conscience to the degree that he can't feel anymore. Uh, But I do think his godly grief is going to bring him back to repentance. Uh, So that's how I make sense of that passage. Do you believe that works are required for salvation? That's kind of it's kind of like a trick question, <laughs> not a trick question, but so like, are works required for salvation? Um, as far as like works required in order to obtain salvation, no. Um, I do not believe that salvation is gained or even maintained by works. Um, so Ephesians two eight and nine says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, right? So um, we are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works. Works didn't get us saved, right? But I do think that works flow from uh, a heart that has been genuinely converted. And so the next verse, nobody usually reads the next verse, but it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I think that verse 10 just perfectly explains my position. You're saved through faith, and faith faith establishes you as that new creation in Christ. Um, It says you're created in Christ for good works. So if God created you in Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, then that's what you're going to do. It's going to flow from that relationship. Sorry, I'm throwing my phone around. It's going to flow from that relationship that you have with him. So how how would you harmonize? This kind of goes along with James chapter two, which um, many people from your position would say that James two clearly teaches that uh, a true, genuine faith will produce works that will naturally flow from that faith. Um, and so in James chapter 2, how, how do we harmonize James chapter 2 when it talks about being justified uh, by works and not by faith only with Romans chapter 4 where it says, and I quote, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, end quote. Yeah, and this isn't even just like a, a free grace versus lordship salvation. Like, 
problem. It's not just a problem for Lordship. It's also a problem for free grace and um, just for everybody trying to reconcile this, right? Because we all believe the Bible, but when you just read it at face value, it seems to be a contradiction here. And this is one of those, this is one of those passages that, you know, I'm kind of open, you know, if somebody else has an explanation that makes more sense to me than what I'm about to, to give you, um, then I'm, I'm open to other explanations on this. And this is just kind of what I've come up with in preparation for this and just reading through it myself. But uh, if you look in Genesis chapter 15, that's where God told Abraham that he's going to have a son and that his offspring would be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. And that is where the Bible says that Abraham believed God. He believed him for a son. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And so that seems to be at this point when Abraham, he's justified in that salvific sense. But at that time, there's no action put to it. Like he just believes him for a son, but that's just belief. There's nothing that he did uh, that establishes that truth, you know, that he's justified there. But in James, uh, he's talking about Abraham being justified when he offered up his son Isaac. That came much later, right? That's, you know, 16 years or something later. So his belief in God from years before, when he believed for a son, that was manifested in his action. So verse 22 of James 2 says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So I, I don't think that faith and works are just always at odds with one another. I think that faith produces works, and that's a major point that you see in the book of James. Um, so whenever he believes God for a child, we see the declaration of his justification. But in his willingness, let's say 16 years later, to sacrifice Isaac, we see the reality of that justification. We heard about his his faith or um you know, years before, but now we fully see it. And it's like that with our faith. You can say that you have faith, and you might, but I will only see the reality of your faith when you act on your faith. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I see it. Like I said, I'm open to other thoughts or ideas, but um, yeah, that's kind of where I am right now. So my next question for you is, can a person receive eternal life and still perish in the end? And before you answer, if if that if you if you answer yes, then what do we do with John ten twenty eight, where it says that quote they shall never perish end quote? If Jesus said they will never perish, and the person still ends up perishing in the end, then doesn't that kind of make Jesus uh, a liar? What's your take on that? Um, well, of course, I don't believe that Jesus is a liar. Of course not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let me read that passage in context. And, and also keep this in mind. Um, this, this is my view. Uh, and this is one of those views that, you know, I'm like 90% there on, on my view here. I'm open um, to the other side. I see the scriptures for the other side. Um, I just see more for the side that I'm holding to. But but if somebody can just, you know, explain everything to me, you know, this is one of the things that I, I could get on board with. Um, but yeah, Jesus is not a liar. 
Um, I'm going to read the full context here in John 10, verses, verse 26. It says, But you do not believe me because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I do think that this verse poses a problem for free grace proponents. Because what do the sheep do? Sheep follow. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. If you're a sheep, you follow. Mm-hmm. Not just like a large percentage of them, but all sheep follow him. Um, and that is a work that is in some way connected to eternal life. And that doesn't jive with the free grace view. Um, so if you follow Jesus, you're one of his sheep. And the promise of never perishing is given to his sheep. So if you stop following Jesus, you're no longer one of his sheep because sheep follow. Um, So the promise no longer applies to you if you stop following. Um, And I I can kind of illustrate this by saying, what if I said that the unbelievers, the non-sheep, will never have eternal life? Well, that's true. Unbelievers, non-sheep, will never have eternal life. But it doesn't mean that they can't stop being unbelievers and become believing sheep. If they do, then they're going to have eternal life. Um, So that's kind of how I see it. Um, There is that, uh, what do you call it, that that connection there between following and being a sheep. So if you don't follow, you're not a sheep. And so the promise doesn't apply to those who are not sheep. Mm -hmm. So... Would would it be safe to say that you believe a person can receive eternal life and still perish in the end? Yeah, I don't I don't see eternal life as um, you know something that Jesus just like like a coin that he gives you that you can keep in your pocket. I think eternal life is found in Christ. Uh, eternal life was there before you were ever born mm-hmm. uh, because it was in Christ from the beginning. And whenever you put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are moved positionally in him. He is in you and you are in him. Right. And mm-hmm. and so if you are cut off from Christ, you're no longer in Christ, then you no longer have eternal life. It's still there. Eternal life still exists, but you're no longer a partaker of it because you're no longer in Christ. That's kind of how I see it. Gotcha. I appreciate that answer. Yeah. Um so I guess my question would be um, in Acts, uh, I, I can't remember which chapter off the top of my head. Uh, I can look it up. But in Acts, the story of the Philippian jailer, when the Philippian jailer asked, uh, what, what must I do to be saved? Um, why didn't Paul tell the jailer that he needed to repent or – I know – the, the idea of good works and baptize that uh, you've clarified now at this point that you don't believe works are required uh, to to be saved initially um, or or baptism is not required for salvation. You, you cited Cor- the story of Cornelius and his household. So I guess my question would then be, um, why didn't Paul tell the jailer that he needed to repent in order to be saved? Yeah, good question. And... Um... I went to that passage, and this this is what I do. When I've got a question about the Bible, I just I go straight to it, and 
examine the context. Mm. It's Acts 16, verse 30. It says, And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the jailer. What can I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your household. But if you continue reading, it says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized, he and all his family. So obviously Paul didn't just tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And he's like, take me to the water. Right? He had to be uh, taught about baptism, at least, because then he goes out and gets baptized. Well, it doesn't say anything right there about baptism, but we know he went out and got baptized. So... Mm-hmm. I would have to conclude uh, that because Paul preached repentance everywhere else, that he probably talked to this uh, Philippian jailer about repentance. Uh, we don't we don't see the full context of the conversation. We just see that he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all his house, and then they were baptized. So um, I definitely think that it it could have been in there somewhere. I appreciate that answer as well. So what about the thief on the cross? Uh, what is your take on that situation? Um, and mm-hmm. how does this example in the Bible fit with your soteriology about, uh, um, you know, repentance, um, uh, making Christ Lord type of uh, soteriology? Yeah, I think his story fits uh, perfectly, really. Um, and sometimes people bring up the thief on the cross to try to show that he didn't do any works and he was still saved. Um, but really, except for the those like the Church of Christ who believe that, you know, in baptismal regeneration for believers, like you have to be in water in order to be saved. I really don't know of anybody who like lists certain things that you have to do to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, but there does need to be repentance and faith, a change of mind about yourself, about God. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that really vividly in the thief on the cross. So this story is in Luke 23. And then one of the thieves was railing on Jesus saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. So he already understood something about what it meant to be Christ. Um, And the fact that the one thief rebuked the other thief shows that he had become a believer. Like he's and and he says to the other thief, he says, you you and I deserve to be here, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. So I don't know if I go as far as to say that he's believing in the sinless perfection of Jesus. Maybe he was. Um, but at the very minimum, he's recognizing his own sinfulness. And he knew that he was getting what he deserved. Um, that's, to me, repentance. And then he spoke to Jesus and he said this. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's recognizing Jesus's kingship and his authority over death because he's about to die. Right, but he's recognizing that he's not going to stay dead. He's going to come into his kingdom. So I think um, if there's if that's not evidence of like a change of heart and mind, I don't really know what is. That seems like a pretty amazing switch because one of the gospels talked in the beginning about them both railing on Jesus, and then something happened in the heart of one of them. Yeah, good answer. So in Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does it mean to be, quote, sealed unto the day of redemption, end quote? Yeah, I, Russ, I think this is one of the strongest verses in my mind 
uh, for eternal security. Um, and I'll I'll read through it again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, here's a view that I, that I hold right now. I'm open to other ideas, thoughts. But I do think that whenever you get saved, you put your faith in Jesus. There's a certain degree of protection that is offered when you put your faith in Christ. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5 and 18 says, we, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we have a certain degree of protection. Right? With every temptation, God always makes a way of escape that we may be able to bear. There's always a way out for the Christian. And I think that's part of what it means to be sealed unto the day of redemption. There's help and there's hope in Christ out of every temptation, out of every struggle. So he preserves those who are in Christ by faith. But my view is that if you continue to grieve God, I think it's possible for that seal to be broken. And this passage here in Ephesians, it seems to be pulling from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, 9 and 10. It says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So I don't think that the Holy Spirit will continue to dwell in you if all you do is continually grieve him over and over again, like your your whole life. I don't think he'll 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 continually dwell in an unholy vessel. Uh, so I do think seals can be broken. So <clears throat> this this next question is a multi-part question, so I want to make sure that I read through it uh, completely and, and a little bit slowly so everybody listening can hear uh, every part of the question. If a person can indeed lose their salvation, at what point do they lose it? How much sin does it take to lose it? What kind of sins? And finally, where is this laid out in the Bible? Yeah, all good questions. Um, and I've heard, I've heard this question quite a bit. It's like, if you can lose your salvation, how many sins does it, does it take to lose it? Like five sins or 30 sins or 100 or... When you get to 70 times 7, like after that, no forgiveness. Um, but I, I I don't believe that it's your sin that causes you to lose salvation. I think that's the first um, misunderstanding. Um, faith is the mechanism that got you into Christ. And so I think that uh, a rejection of that faith is what can cause you to be cut off from Christ. So it's not like... Sin five times, and then that's that's the limit. Um, but if you reject your faith in Christ, then I think that's when you would would you lose your salvation, uh, because the Scripture says in Hebrews, it says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Um, so. Essentially, like how I believe that it works is, is sin can um, dull your conscience. It can cause you to like no longer feel 
the guilt and the shame that you should feel. And um, it can eventually lead to your rejection of, of your faith. But I don't think sin in and of itself causes you to lose your salvation. It's the rejection of your faith. Um, and we could get into that a little bit deeper. I mean, I do think maybe it's possible to uh, create a false image of God in your mind, a God that like doesn't ever judge sin and he's okay with me sinning and, you know, I can continue to sin and there's nothing, you know, no problem. And you turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. I think that's a danger. Uh, but I would just say that, yeah, the re it's rejecting your faith in Christ that causes you to be cut off from Christ. All righty. Um, first Peter one twenty three. it says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Um, my question would be, is the part of us that's born again of the incorruptible seed, um, can that part of us still end up being corrupted? Yeah, and, and several of these verses, they're good eternal security verses, but they're poor free grace verses. So verse 22 here says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, you purified your souls by obedience to the truth. That's already contrary to free grace. Like purifying your soul has nothing to do with your obedience to the truth on the free grace perspective, as far as I understand. But for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like the grass and all the glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So the perishable seed here, I think it's speaking of like the descent from your human parents, like the perishable seed. Um, but you've been born again through imperishable, through the word of God. So the word of God is the seed that is imperishable. And if the word of God abides in you, then no, you'll never perish. In that sense, I believe in eternal security. If the word of God continues to abide in you, you can continue to hold fast to the word of God, you will never perish. But if you reject the word of God, then at that point, that's when you would perish. Thank you for your answer. Um. John 20, uh, verse 30 and 31. I want to read it and then ask you a question. It says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you, may, you might have life through his name. Um. I guess my question is, uh, why doesn't the and, and I'm sure you've heard this from free grace advocates before. If the purpose of the book of John was that we might believe in Jesus Christ and that that believing we might have life through His name, if that's the purpose of writing, why doesn't John um, ever mention uh, repentance as a requirement for salvation? Yeah, I have heard this question pretty often. Um, and there's a lot there's a lot of words that you don't see in the book of John. Right? You don't see prayer, pray, justification, forgive, forgiveness, redeem. Um, but just because we don't see 
those the, the those words or the word repentance in one of the four gospels, it doesn't mean that it's not important and doesn't impact our salvation in any way. Um, and I honestly, I don't fully understand this argument because we do have other other three gospels, mm-hmm. and even if they don't state their intended purpose in quite the same clear way as John does here. Um, they're all telling pretty much the same story from different perspectives, right? And so it's all meant to cause us to believe in Christ. And and you do see repentance very vividly in uh, some of the other books. So uh, just because we don't see a certain word uh, doesn't mean that it's not there. Like we don't see the word love in the book of Acts, but we do know that love was important to the early church. It's kind of a big deal. Um, Paul talks about it in First uh, Corinthians 13. But I, I do want to give you a couple other passages in the book of John uh, that do seem to indicate that there, there's a connection here between our belief and our works. So there's this one. Uh, I think I've mentioned this one already. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son of and the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's the one that's also translated, whoever does not believe the Son of God shall not see life. Um, so unbelievers won't see life. Uh, that doesn't really make sense under free grace. Um, verse 5, or chapter 5, rather, verse 29, And come out those who have done good unto the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So that's kind of self-explanatory. It doesn't. That doesn't seem to jive with free grace. Chapter 10, verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and his sheep follow him for they know his voice, right? So his sheep, again, they're doing something. They're responding to their faith in God. They're following him. Um, Chapter 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not you, you might, but if you love him, you will try to follow him. That doesn't mean you'll, you'll never stumble. You know, the disciples, they made mistakes, they failed, right? But they were still disciples because they kept getting up and they kept following. Um, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. All right? So if it doesn't, if you don't bear fruit, he takes you away. He cuts you off. And verse 10 in the same chapter, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Right, so if you don't keep his commandments, you're not going to abide in his love. And I think that, you know, if you're not abiding in his love, you're in serious trouble. So that's not all the passages in John, even that that deal with this subject. that I don't think can be easily explained by free grace proponents, but um, there's there's a couple there. So, <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> I have a question. If works are required for salvation, doesn't that take a bit of glory from Jesus Christ as Savior? Like, if we're required to obey, to be saved, and follow Him, and and do all of these things in order to uh, maybe maintain our salvation or whatever, however you want to put it, um, doesn't doesn't the lordship position kind of take a little bit of glory away from Jesus? Yeah, those, those are kind of different, different things. So, like, 
sure if works are required for salvation, or maybe even if works are required to maintain salvation. I could even see that. Maybe that can take away glory from Jesus, but that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right? Works are not required for salvation. Um, but works are done in response to the indwelling spirit of God inside of you. And I don't think that that takes away glory from Christ. I think that gives glory to Christ. Yeah. When you respond in faith to Christ and you, you out of that, do things for him, like that gives glory to him. I think, um, I think you make God smile when you do that. Um, now, I guess this kind of goes along the same way. Like, uh, I guess you would answer the next question in a similar fashion. Um, you know, didn't Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for believing uh, that their works uh, could make them righteous? Um, and I guess knowing knowing your position more more fully, um, I don't believe that you think that uh, that works can make you righteous, or do you? No, you're you're right. Yeah, um, I do not believe that that works can make you righteous. Yes, Jesus definitely rebuked the Pharisees for that, and there are some people out there that seem to still have that view that that works do make you righteous and. If Jesus was walking the earth right now, I think he would rebuke them. But uh, then he may tell us, hey, you know, don't be like those guys, but do all the things that they that they say, because that's kind of what he said um, about the Pharisees. Like all the things that they do, command you to do, just do them. Obey the law, follow the law, but don't be like them. Don't think that you're going to get in just because of, you know, you're connected to Abraham or just because you've kept the law to a certain degree. Right. So can a person lose their salvation and then gain it back again? Or um, maybe that's not the correct wording. Can a person lose their salvation and then be resaved? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to have to to be honest and say, I don't know the answer to that. Um Hebrews chapter 6 seems to show that they cannot be saved again if they've fallen away. Um, And there's a couple of ways to to kind of dance around that. So in that passage, it it lists some attributes that are specific to believers. Most of your viewers, they're probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 6. But it talks about these believers. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and tasted of the powers of the age to come. So... I kind of entertain this idea that that maybe this is identifying a mature believer, that lists the five things that's a mature believer versus an immature believer. And if a mature believer falls, then he knows full well what he's doing and he can't be renewed again to repentance. But it might be possible for an immature believer to be renewed again to repentance. But um, maybe I'm working too hard to make this fit into a view that I want to hold. So uh, it could be that the plain reading here is correct. So I, I want to dig into it a little bit deeper, but I'm open to both views here. If when the Bible states that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, um, how then can we still lose our salvation if, if nothing can separate us from that? Yeah, uh, this is another one of those passages that I think is is um works pretty well for eternal security not so much for free grace it says who shall separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword 
As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So, like, what does it mean to be a conqueror through Christ? Like, can you reject Christ and still be a conqueror through Christ? I don't think that you can do that. Right? So this, this passage seems to be detrimental to free grace. Uh, it goes on, I am sure that neither life nor death or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers nor heights or depths or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're a Christian, then you're safe, you're secure positionally in Christ. Like, I was amazed, like, when I read through the book of Ephesians, and I just, I caught that theme, in Christ, in Christ. And then I read through looking for that, and it's everywhere. And not just Ephesians, it's like everywhere in the New Testament, you see us being positionally in him, in Christ. And uh, so if you're a Christian, you're safe, you're secure positionally in Christ. You can conquer, you can overcome all of these things that have been listed here through Christ. Right? But if you reject Christ, and then you're cut off from him, I don't think that this promise applies to you. Um, you know, all of these things, like they can, you know, they can hurt you now, right? That, that you're cut off from Christ. But if you're in Christ, he's protecting you. He's um, keeping you from these things. Awesome. I appreciate that. Um, if a person were to turn from God and start worshiping idols or, or, or even uh, the devil himself, if a person were to do that, if a Christian were to do that, uh, will they lose their salvation? Uh, and if so, I know you kind of touched on this already, but I got to ask it again. If so, then can they ever be saved after that point? Right. So this is kind of the crux. Like I talked in the beginning, um, my big disagreement with free grace. And um, I know you were interviewing someone on free grace. I don't know who who it was, but I am really interested in their answer to this question. Um, I asked this question of Sean Lazar in our debate, and um, essentially he said, like, yes, if a person, even if they worship idols or the devil, they're still going to be saved. And, and that flies in the face of so much scripture. Um, so I would say, yeah, they they would lose their salvation. They would forfeit their faith because you can't serve two masters. You can't have faith in God and worship the devil at the same time. It doesn't work like that. What communion has light with darkness? You know, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? There's there's no connection there. You can't do both. Um, so as to whether or not they can be saved after they've they've fallen away from the truth, I don't know. <laughs> Again. Um, you know, I, if someone was in that position, uh, I would still be trying to reach them. Because, you know, maybe my interpretation of Scripture is wrong and they can be saved, or maybe they never were saved to begin with. But, but if somebody's in that position, you know, I'm kind of going to put some of this, this theology, not, not putting it aside, not ignoring it, right? But I'm just going to assume that everybody can be saved and I'm going to try to reach them. That's kind of the practical part of it. I appreciate that. Um, now, I know you said uh, earlier uh, concerning the next question um, that you don't necessarily think that it's sin 
that that causes us to lose our salvation, but rather our unbelief or turning away from God or or what have you. But mm-hmm. um, if let, I want to re- kind of rephrase this question then, because I don't I don't want this question just to to be pointless at this at this uh, at this juncture in the interview here. But if if unbelief, right? If unbelief mm-hmm. or denial of Christ or what what have you, if if that could cause us to lose our salvation, well, doesn't that make unbelief or denial of Christ more potent than the blood of Christ? Um, no, I don't believe so. And then also, most most free grace proponents are not Calvinists. Right. Um, so most free grace proponents like me are not going to believe in limited atonement. We believe that Christ died for all. So um, I think that, um, you know, if I was to answer yes, that makes unbelief more potent than the blood of Christ. Um, the free grace proponent would have to say, well, that's the same thing that I believe. Right. Because Christ died for all. And there's a lot of people that are not going to because a free grace proponent, they, they don't believe that. If someone has never believed in Christ, they're not going to heaven, right? So that unbelief could keep them from becoming a Christian. So it's does that make it more potent than the blood of Christ? No, I don't think so. Um, there's a there's a verse that I think is really relevant to this question, uh, Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty nine. It says, "Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the son of God and counted the blood of his covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot to the spirit of grace. So like if somebody by their actions has trodden underfoot the son of God and counted his blood as unholy, then to say that that person remains guiltless, I think that actually diminishes the blood of Christ. It diminishes the holiness of God. Right? So you can kind of just, turn it around a little bit and say, mm-hmm. oh, that, that my view doesn't limit it. Your view does. <laughs> if we're going to kind of play that game. Oh yeah. Thanks for that answer. Um, now last couple questions and, uh, kind of wanted you to play devil's advocate here. No pun intended. Um, but what are some of the strongest arguments, uh, in your opinion that free grace advocates make? Okay, um, I don't think that there are a lot. Um, I hope I don't hurt anyone's feelings by saying that. But um, I'm trying to answer this question as honestly as I can. This, this is kind of like one of those interview questions where it's like, tell me something that you're not good at, or you know, <laughs> tell me a, a problem that you have, and you try to turn it around and make it like a, a pro about yourself. Um, but honestly, I think. As far as just specific to free grace, some of the more difficult passages for me to deal with are going to be like these Old Testament believers who were caught in terrible sins. So like like a Samson or like a David who, you know, sinned with Bathsheba, and it seems like he may have remained unrepentant for you know, nine months or after the baby is born. And then he does repent. He does, he does change. Right. But, um, it, it took a little while. And then like Solomon and all the things that Solomon got wrapped up in. Um, 
that's probably the, the biggest thing, the biggest hurdle. Um, it's kind of interesting to me that we don't really have any or many like clear New Testament examples of this. I mean, you might look at Peter, but then the same night that Peter denies Christ, he's going out and he's weeping bitterly and he's like, sorry for you know, everything he's ever done. Um, so I don't think he's a good example. Um, there's the uh, the guy that's like with his mother-in-law or whatever in um, 1 Corinthians 5. But then uh, Paul is talking about like he needs to be put out so that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment which seems to be implying that if he's not put out, then his spirit might not be saved on the day of judgment. Uh, so he may lose his, his faith. Uh, so, yeah, that's, but that's still, that's, I think that's one of the hardest ones. Um, but in the new Testament, like it's, it's a little bit different than the old Testament, right? Because we've been regenerated. We're in dwelt with the Holy spirit. Um, now we all have the Holy spirit. Uh, whereas he just kind of rested upon some people in the Old Testament. So I think that's one of the big differences. Um, and, then, and then aside from that, I think a lot of free grace proponents um, are going to attack my rejection of once saved, always saved. And I just want to make that clear that there's a lot of people uh, from the Lordship side that do hold to once saved, always saved. So that's not just like a free grace Lordship thing. Um, but there are some, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm 80, 90 percent where I, you know, on my stance on eternal security, but I do see the other side, and I think there are some good arguments from the other side. Yeah, when you mentioned uh, Solomon, that kind of made me think about uh, question 23 again, um, where I asked if a person turns from God, starts worshiping idols, or, or even the devil, will they lose their salvation? Because um, that's exactly what Solomon did. Um, Solomon, mm -hmm. Solomon turned... The Bible says that his wives turned his heart from mm -hmm. from the living God to worshiping idols, which him being as wise as he was more than likely knew exactly what he was doing. He probably knew exactly what an idol was, um, like we're told in the New Testament that they're actually devils. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, Solomon, his heart was actually turned from God towards those uh idols or, or demons, if you will, devils. And uh, so then would you say that Solomon lost his salvation? And if he did, uh, do you believe that he ever got it back? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to exactly say that salvation worked differently in the Old Testament, but I do think there are some, some pretty marked differences between the Old Testament and the New. Um. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about, um, you know, having, what does it say, having tasted of uh, the heavenly gift, um, tasting of the Holy Spirit, right? So, so we now, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit in a way that not even Solomon did. Um, and in the Bible, there's this principle, like, to the, the more that you have, the more you're going to be accountable for. And so that might be one of the differences between the old and the new. We now, every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so if you reject Christ, you know, if you go to worshiping idols, you know, it could be that there's no longer a sacrifice for sin for you because you've been you've you've experienced the fullness of God because you've had you've been indwelt with the Spirit. Well, Solomon wasn't filled in that same way. So 
and that's that's just kind of off the cuff. I'll, right. That's not yeah. a question I was, that question I was, was off the cuff. Right. But that's that's kind of my perspective. My some you know some ideas I have on it, but it's a good question. Um, I wouldn't mind jumping into that a little bit deeper. Awesome. Now, my final question is, uh, could you possibly be wrong about anything you said here tonight or everything? Um, never been wrong before, so... <laughs> uh, now, I I've, I know I'm probably wrong on some things theologically. Like, I think if you can't admit that you're wrong on some things theologically, or you probably are, um, then you're probably wrong on a lot more things than you think. If somebody thinks I know everything, I would steer clear of them as a teacher. Um, I, I've changed my views on several theological topics after just studying the scripture for myself, because we're all kind of taught, and then we kind of have this base knowledge, and then we go on and study things for ourselves, and sometimes things change, and, um, you know, and I get that. I'm a fallible human being. Um, but as far as free grace theology, I, I've I've tried to look at things from— that perspective. I, I honestly try to put myself in that place. And, um, you know, on my list of 100 passages, I've gone through and like, there are passages that I can understand from a free grace perspective. Like, at first, I didn't see it. But now I can kind of see how you can see that from a free grace perspective. But there are just so many that I can't, you know, I, I can't fit that square inside the circle of scripture. I don't know how to do it. I don't, I don't think it fits. Um, so eternal security, I don't think I'm wrong. But I would say it's at least possible because I can understand why the other side believes like they do. I can't really do that with free grace. There's just so many scriptures I can't make sense of. Um, so honestly, I'm not super open on that end. But uh, scripture is my standard of truth. So if somebody was able to take all of these, uh, all of these scriptures that I've mentioned to you, and all of my thoughts and ideas and arguments, and if they were just able able to clearly from scripture explain them and refute them, then I'm just going to go wherever scripture leads. Right? So I, I think most of your listeners are probably right there. Like they just, you know, I, I'm pretty sure just from the little bit of conversation I've had with you, you're there. I just want to go wherever scripture leads. You know, I don't, I don't have, you know, much in this other than just that's where I want to go. All right, man. I appreciate your time and your effort into answering these questions. And again, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Russ. It's been a privilege.